Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This year, we have celebrated England's lionesses winning the UEFA Women's Euro 2022 Cup Final. And this month, you may well be waiting with bated breath to see how England's men fare in the FIFA World Cup. Such anticipation, celebration and sometimes commiseration, we hope not, are nothing new in football. In fact, the game of football goes back centuries. You've no doubt heard stories of people playing with a ball made from an inflated pig's bladder. But what else is there to know about early modern football? In today's explainer, I'm going to take you through the game who played it, where it was played, and the rules people played by, or didn't, as we'll see. Today, members of royalty often act as sports ambassadors and patrons. Was the same true of royalty 500 years ago? And although today we know football by the phrase Pele chose for his autobiography, the beautiful game, was it a sport of beauty in the past? Finally, I'll also try to explain something about the purpose football served in society. Was it a form of leisure? Or was it something more? I cannot promise that today's explainer will create the emotional highs and lows that the real game provides, but it will provide plenty of fascinating history. Some of the earliest reliable references to a game called football come from the 14th century. Although I don't want to stretch the temporal bounds of this podcast too much, I will indulge briefly by outlining what those sources tell us. So the first time that we have something referenced called football, and we can be sure it's football instead of some other sort of ball game, is in a proclamation by King Edward II in 1314, prohibiting the game in order to preserve peace. Our first reliable reference to football, in other words, is it being banned. The king was bound for war with Scotland and commanded there be no great uproar in London through certain tumult arising from great footballs in the fields of the public. Then later, in 1365, during the reign of Edward III, an order was given that on feast days, men had to use bows and arrows and not under pain of imprisonment to meddle in football. So what we know so far about football in the 14th century It was popular and it caused great uproar and tumult. Let's fast forward then to the 16th century. Now, 
Unfortunately, no written rules survived for the game of early modern football, and there were also no central organisations responsible for football. Nonetheless, we have documents referring to playing with a football and playing football, which typically involved, as you've guessed it, an inflated pig's bladder that sometimes was and sometimes wasn't encased in leather. There's no reason to assume that early modern footballs were only kicked. The evidence suggests that they were often carried, in a similar way to the practice in rugby or American football today. One thing we can confidently say is that the heart of the game was a struggle between different groups. Groups could be people from different villages, different trades, or just one village split into two teams. For example, in Corfe in Dorset, the company of freemen marblers and quarriers played annually against one another. There are also some references to bachelors playing against married men. And as for the number of players, well, based on evidence from court cases, which are against people who broke the law by playing, there was no upper limit on the number of people in a team. It could be 100, and the sides did not have to be equal in number. Football was not regarded as a game for nobility. Those who were engaging in gentlemanly sports, such as fencing, real tennis, falconry, jousting and riding. And as for women, well, we don't have evidence that they played football, but then nor do we have evidence that they did not. The playing area could be vast, perhaps three or four miles in length, across and through fields. With such distances involved, it seems unlikely that there were goals or goalkeepers. Instead, it's more likely that players were attempting to reach a certain base, perhaps a bit more like a try line in rugby. Accounts tell us these bases could be gentlemen's houses, balconies of churches, or just a distant village. There was no football kit to speak of, for most people at least, although some accounts describe players stripping down to their slightest apparel. I guess we can imagine them in their linen undershirts or shifts. And to be fair, you might get rather hot if your football pitch was three miles wide. As we move into the early modern period, roughly every 15 years, from the 14th to the 17th centuries, so between 1314 and 1615 to be exact, and sometimes as often as every three, the government issued an edict against ball games, including football. Sometimes the edict made clear that authorities resented that men were being drawn to play football instead of performing their military training in archery. You might remember that every man was expected to practice archery on a Sunday in medieval and Tudor England, ready to be called to arms if ever the monarch commanded. And this rule was still in operation in Elizabethan London, with archery butts sighted, for example, in Southwark. But there's another possible reason why authorities tried to ban football. Edicts made specific reference to the disorder football created. So far, we've certainly got a picture of large crowds in an amorphous game of football come rugby ranging across fields and through villages. In the words of scholars Norbert Elias and Eric Dunning, football was wild. They found evidence of games such as those in Manchester in 1608 and 09 when great harm was done, and I quote, by a company of lewd and disordered persons using that unlawful exercise of playing with the football in the streets. Windows were broken, inhabitants were wronged, and the players committed many great enormities. Professor Stephen Gunn and Dr Thomas Gromowski of the University of London used coroner's reports for a four-year project called Everyday Life and Fatal Accident in 16th Century England. It's fascinating stuff, you can find it online, and it's relevant to football. 
The first way it's relevant is it tells us in the coroner's reports that football had regional names. In Cornwall, it was called hurling, and in East Anglia, camping. Gunn and Gromowski's research shows that in hurling, players could be tackled whether they had the ball or not, which seems quite a good excuse to hurl yourself onto someone you don't like. An account written in 1602 by Richard Carew, a Cornish antiquary, explained that hurling involves a tackle called butting, where the player with the ball could thrust another in the chest with a closed fist to keep them off. I think we call that a punch. If the player with the ball was not stopped, he could be butted by another and he himself could butt others until the person with the ball touched the ground with some part of his body or cried hold, at which point the ball had to be thrown, known as dealing, ideally to a fellow player. Therefore, it's not just that football was wild, it's that in its very nature, butting and all, it was violent and could even cause death, as is made clear by the fact that it appears in coroner's reports, some of which you can find on that website, Everyday Life and Fatal Hazard in 16th century England. Let me give you a flavour of some. Here is one from 1576 in the Middlesex County Records. It notes... That on the said day at Ricelip, Middlesex, Arthur Reynolds, husbandman with five others, all of Ricelip aforesaid, Thomas Darcy of Waxbridge, yeoman, with seven others, four of whom were husbandmen, one a tailor, one a Harris marker, one a yeoman, all seven of Waxbridge aforesaid, with unknown malefactors to the number of 100, assembled themselves unlawfully and played a certain unlawful game called football, by means of which unlawful game there was amongst them a great affray, likely to result in homicides and serious accident. Sometimes games did, in fact, result in homicide, as on Sunday 4th of February 1509 at Tregordon in Cornwall. Sixty men were playing in a game of whirling, according, said the coroner's jury, to ancient custom. John Cooling of Bodive, a village one mile west of Tregordon, ran very strongly and rapidly towards Nicholas Jarn of Benbowl, a village two miles east of Tregordon, holding a ball in his right hand. They grappled and Nicholas threw John away from himself. John fell on the ground from the force of the tackle and broke the lesser part of his left leg. He died on the 20th of February. And this account is from the Middlesex County Records for 1581. Coroner's Inquisition, post-mortem taken at South Mims, Middlesex, in view of the body of Roger Ludford, yeoman, there lying dead with the verdict of the jurors that Nicholas Martin and Richard Turvey, both late of South Mims, yeoman, were on the third instant, between 3 and 4 p.m., playing with other persons at football in the field called Evansesfeld at South Mims, when the said Roger Ludford and a certain Simon Maltus of the said parish, yeoman, came to the ground and that Roger Ludford cried out, cast him over the hedge, indicating that he meant Nicholas Martin, who replied, come thou and do it, that thereupon Roger Ludford ran towards the ball with the intention to kick it, whereupon Nicholas Martin with the forepart of his right arm and Richard Turvey with the forepart of his left arm struck Roger Ludford a blow in the forepart of the body under the breast, giving him a mortal blow. So what has happened here? Roger Ludford told Nicholas Martin to cast, or kick him, meaning the ball, over the hedge, and Nicholas told him to do it himself, come thou and do it. And the choice here of thou as his pronoun suggests that these two knew each other well. Roger went towards the ball to kick it, 
and Nicholas and another man called Richard Turvey seem to have landed simultaneous punches to Roger around the kidneys, presumably intentionally, and the blows killed him. All three men were yeomen, and there's a history here that we don't know. We can't get at the reason for this attack. But the fact is that football was the occasion and maybe the cause. Hi there. I'm Don Wildman, host of the new podcast, American History Hit. Twice a week, I'll be exploring stories from America's past to help us understand the United States of today. Join me as I head back in time to witness Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence, head to the battlefields during the Civil War, visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with English colonists, tour Central Park before it was Central Park, and a city in Tennessee which helped build the atomic bomb. From famous battlefields to secret cities, from familiar names to lesser-known events, I'll speak with leading experts from across the United States and beyond to bring American history to life. Join me every Monday and Thursday for American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The many accounts of violence that erupted during football matches helped to explain why the authorities were so worried about it. When proclamations and threats of imprisonment didn't work, sometimes towns tried to introduce an alternative. The mayor and corporation of Chester in 1540 announced that to stop evil disposed persons, they would introduce a foot race instead of football, and that this would be supervised by the mayor. But this all leads me to ask... Why did early modern football matches involve such vicious behaviour? One theory is that footballing fights were not accidental brawls, but some sort of equilibrating type of leisure. 
In support of this theory is evidence that on some saints and holy days, villagers would arrange fights like boxing matches as entertainment, which allow people to express their hostility and release tensions as a kind of safety valve. If you think about it in this way, football in the early modern period is also a kind of form of letting off steam. And perhaps this hints at why people clung to the game so ardently despite repeated proclamations forbidding it. An example of football being used essentially as a staged fight is an account from Cambridge in 1579 when a group of students went to the village of Chesterton to play their annual football match. On this particular occasion, the townsmen of Chesterton had hidden sticks in the porch of the church. Once the match had started, the townsmen recovered and brandished the sticks and broke them over the students' heads. In a desperate attempt to escape, the students waded across the River Cam. The constable of Chesterton was even amongst those playing and accused the students of being the first to break the peace. Perhaps this shows how villagers from Chesterton objected to the privilege enjoyed by students at Cambridge. An example of the sort of town versus gown frustrations that seem to happen to this day in some university cities. Another explanation is that violence erupted when people who were playing broke the rules. We don't know these rules in their entirety today, so it's hard to judge. But evidence for this idea comes from a 1602 account of football in Cornwall, which reports that the players are bound to the observation of many laws, including that the person with the ball could only butt one other person at a time. The account goes on to say that the least breach of these laws would allow the others to group together to go up against the opposition in a line. If I'm imagining it right, it sounds like something like a cross between a scrum and a penalty kick. Now, while the author makes it clear that none should seek revenge for wrongs and hurts, breaking of the rules clearly could make people cross, leading to violence in the game. Sir Thomas Elliot, in the book named The Governor, condemned football as a game wherein is nothing but beastly fury and extreme violence, whereof proceedeth hurt, and consequently rancour and malice do remain with them that be wounded. The third explanation why football broke into violence is a simple one. The desire to win. We still today see tempers boiling over when people start playing sport from time to time. We also need to be mindful, of course, that although we have many sources that report violence, we only have evidence of the matches that went wrong. It's quite possible that many, even most matches, didn't break into violence at all, and that they therefore left no record in the court books or coroner's reports. Whether we think early modern football dissipated tensions or made them worse, the game was certainly part of the fabric of society. So much so that many historians refer to it as folk football, implying it was a kind of ritualised custom or tradition. Of all the saints' days and holy days when football was played, one in particular did become a ritual, the Shrovetide football match. Played annually on Shrove Tuesday in England, the early modern match took local forms. In Chester, the shoemakers challenged the drapers. In Derby, different towns played each other. Shrove Tuesday was a day for feasting, for dancing, cockfighting and football. All of these things were considered to be sources of merriment and entertainment before the start of the Lenten fast on Ash Wednesday and thereafter. So we can see that football had its place in the church ritual year, something to work off your pancakes next year perhaps. Now if authorities were opposed to football but the church tacitly allowed it as part of the ritual year, what did the monarchs make of it? Well on the surface they also disapproved strongly. 
Henry VII appears to have passed a proclamation against football in 1496. Henry VIII passed one in 1540. In both instances, king and country were under threat and the Henrys didn't want able-bodied men who could fight for them in war squandering themselves in a mere game. But it is quite possible it was a case of do as I say, not do as I do, at least for Henry VIII. Researched by Professor Maria Haywood at the University of Southampton, whom you'll remember as a member of this parish, having appeared on the podcast twice before, scoured the records of the Great Wardrobe. Professor Haywood discovered that Henry VIII commissioned a pair of shoes for playing football in 1526, when he was 35. In fact, when the story came out, it made the newspapers. You may have heard this before. They were made of Italian leather, and the boots cost four shillings. That's about £160 today. And they were stitched together by Cornelius Johnson, Henry's official cordwainer or shoemaker. It appears that these were to be used in a Shrovetide match, and it's most likely Henry would have played with a group of young men at his court. Furthermore, over the border in Scotland, a wonderful discovery was made at Stirling Castle in 1981, suggesting that in Scotland, the royals also enjoyed the game. The discovery was the world's oldest football. The ball must have been kicked high because at some time in the 1540s, it lodged in the rafters of the Queen's Chamber in Stirling Castle. This would have been during James V's reconstruction of the castle between 1537 and 1542, when the Queen's Chamber was being redecorated. And we know that James's daughter, Mary Queen of Scots, later in life took an interest in football, recording a game of it in her diaries when she was at Carlisle Castle. Mary's son, James VI of Scotland and First of England, wrote approvingly of fair and pleasant field games. When he became King of England, he acted against the influence of hot Protestants, those we call Puritans, whose influence had grown in the realm. People like the Bishop of Rochester, who'd complained in 1572 that football violated the sanctuary of the Sabbath. So after 1603, when James became King of England as well as Scotland, he made a speech supporting honest recreation and in 1618 issued the King's Declaration to his subjects concerning lawful sports to be used. This declaration condemned Puritan attempts to ban sports and, with a few exceptions, ordered for sports to be continued in parishes on Sundays and holy days. Football, in particular, was acknowledged by James as a metre for laming, but it was not prohibited. Historian Hissam Saul imagines that James's implicit permission for the game is evidence that he recognised that maintaining the sport was a way of associating himself with traditions of Englishness. Now, while we might regard this as something of a win for football, James's support of sport caused trouble. Alistair Dougal explains that many people were scandalised by the licence the king had given to Sunday recreations, with ministers criticising him as a mere mortal man, in contrast to the king of heaven who doth bid you keep his Sabbath. In Exeter, a constable who tried to stop men playing was told they played at no unlawful game and the king did allow it. James's son, King Charles I, issued a version of the king's declaration which became known as the Book of Sports, going one step further than his father by insisting that clergymen read out the book in every parish church. Many Puritan ministers refused, leading to conflicts between the bishops who enforced Charles's wishes and those who resisted. The Bishop of Norwich suspended 30 ministers for refusing to read the Book of Sports. Interestingly, Dougal finds evidence of people worrying that the book encouraged excessive playing of football. A man called Richard Condor said he became addicted to playing football after church as a young man and upon hearing the book read from the pulpit reflected that iniquity is established by a law. The road 
to the Civil War, however, saw a significant change when it came to football and sports. In April 1640, Charles called Parliament for the first time in 11 years, and the Book of Sports was one of the things that came under attack by MPs. In September 1641, the Commons ordered that all sports on Sundays be stopped, and in May 1643, once the Civil War was well underway, the order was given for the Book of Sports to be burned. So sport was highly politicised. Puritans argued that those who were for the Book of Sports were against Parliament. (laughs) Football, in other words, is one of the causes of the Civil War. The Civil War and the Interregnum saw, in theory, the banning of all revelry and games. Although, as we've recently heard on the podcast, the practice was rather different. But it was only from the Restoration that people could freely play football again. As Charles II progressed through London in May 1660, traditional festivities, of which football was one, were allowed to return. Historian Alan Goodman comments that Charles was no mean sportsman and his enthusiasm for sport symbolised its recovered legitimacy. So football in the early modern period, violent, uproarious, political, contested, popular, some things never change. Thank you to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and researcher, Esther Arnott. And thank you to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. If you haven't already done so, do sign up to our weekly newsletter, Tudor Tuesday, so that you never miss out on the history you love. There are details in the notes below this podcast. And please rate this podcast wherever you listen, now including on Spotify. And please send me your comments and suggestions for future podcasts via our Twitter feed at NotJustTudors or by email NotJustTheTudors at HistoryHit.com. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.